Hello and welcome to the Empire Rolls podcast, supported by Blue Collar Street Food. Well, today I've been joined by a Reading FC legend, and I think it's definitely fair to use that about this guest today. It is A.D. Williams. Hi, A.D. How are you? Very kind. Nice introduction. Glad I wrote it now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You can send me the post, the money in the post, A.D., because I can't touch anything at the moment, can we? Very, very careful. How are you dealing with the corona crisis, or whatever you want to call it at the moment? Well, it is, you know, a crisis is the bigger picture, Paul. I think, you know, everybody involved in sport, you know, you love football, you love Reading, I love football, I love Reading, I love sport. And for me, it just makes you realise, you, you know what, right now, sport and football is pretty irrelevant. You know, the big picture is scary. And, you know, we've got to follow the government guidelines. I'm not saying anything different to what other people have been saying. But you know what, we've had amazing weather. You know, I, I've been doing the exercise every day going for my runs my bike rides my walks and things and lucky enough still broadcast from home as well so yeah i mean uh touch wood i'm in good shape but unfortunately you know many people aren't and this pandemic has affected many many people but uh sport can go on the back burner for a few months mate yeah no totally i mean they're talking about starting the premier league and the efl aren't they but it's going to be such a complex situation <laughs> Seems so strange that we're in this world now that we're kind of like people are worried about going out to sporting events because sporting events for me, it's one of the best things. It takes your mind off normal life. But now the thought of actually going to one would be really stressful. But let's get back to the football and the good times and talking about things that we've all enjoyed. So let's go back to the right beginning of your time at the club in the end of the 80s, your debut in 1988. Take us into the world of Elm Park at that time. You have players like Mine Hicks there, Trevor Senior. What was it like being around those kind of players? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I was a local boy, obviously. You know, I, I, I grew up in Bracknell. I went to school in Bracknell. I was born in, in Reading. I only ever wanted to play for Reading. It's a cliche, and I see too many people saying it when they kiss the badge and <laughs> they make their multi-million pound move to a certain club. But I only ever wanted to play for Reading. And in those days, Paul, it's quite strange because Reading were, you know, struggling in, mm. in, in fairness, in the, in the lower tiers, as you well know. But Martin Hicks was my idol, 100%, over 700 games for, for Reading. Incredible, incredible professional. And he actually lived in Bracknell. So I actually used to get in the same car as the Reading captain, oh. Martin Hicks. And I was like Amazing. 15 and 16, just just going to, to work and getting a lift with this Reading legend, proper Reading legend. So Trevor Senior was a god, obviously, very funny man. But there were too many to, to mention. But for me, it was my dream. It was my ambition. And, uh, you know, I was going to fulfil it. I, I was, you know, confident, that one, confident in my ability without being arrogant. I wasn't the best 15, falling 13, 12-year-old that you've ever seen. There was a lot more better players than me. But I did have the hunger. And I did have the discipline and, um, yeah, when, when the day come to be on the same pitch with those Reading legends, footballing legends as well, great characters. Like, oh, dear me. I mean, where do you start, Paul? Lyndon Jones, what a character. Steve Moran, Mickey Tate, what a hard man Mickey Tate was. You know, Stuart Bevan, he had the two naturally best left foot uh, and right foot, uh, I think, I've still ever seen. You know, naturally two-footed player. You don't see that often nowadays, even in the, in the Premier League. So, there was too many to mention. Colin Bailey, great right back. Michael Jules, good friend of mine still, still at the club, doing a great job now with the academy. So, yeah, it was a, a lifetime ambition and one that I fulfilled and I was happy to do so. 
Yeah, talking about those players there, bring back the memories of Mick Tate. Though a scary man. <laughs> he was a scary man. And like you also like a little bit later, there was like, players like Billy Whitehurst as well. Just oh, yeah, I mean, I often ask this kind of question. Billy Whitehurst or Mick Tate, who would you least want to be involved with a tussle there? Those two that would proper. That would be one hell of a scrap. It would. And, and do you know what, Paul? And I'm, I'm glad you asked that because we had Terry Airlock, another mm, yes. hard man. We've had some real Floyd Street. Yep. Floyd Street. Oh, yeah, really I remember Floyd Street. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so when I was growing up, and I'm so pleased it, it happened to me, and Scotty Taylor, of course, he was a Bracknell boy, and, you know, we, we were, you know, room partners in the, in the early days. When you see these players and and look at them and, and, and just realise how hard and, and tough, mentally tough they are. But do you know what? They were the nicest people in the world. In, you know, there's a saying, isn't there? I'd like to be in a trench with Billy Whitehurst or Mickey Tate. You would, 100%. But do you know what? Mickey Tate, Billy Whitehurst, Floyd Street, Terry, all these real hard men, and they were proper hard men. They would do anything for you. And when we were 15, 16, 17-year-old kids, you know, they used to look after us. They used to have a bit of a giggle with us because I was a bit chopsy. Scotty Taylor was a bit chopsy. And they quite liked that in those days. You could have obviously got a lot away, away with a lot more back in the day. And we did, and they did. And, and we had fun, but they were proper art, proper, proper people, real people. And I was so pleased that I grew up in the dressing room with them. Yeah, totally different now, I'd say. The thought of a player like that now, I mean, A, they wouldn't stay on the pitch for, like, very long at all, would they? No. But... I mean, I kind of like, I don't know, you do kind of reminisce about these times at Elm Park. And what was it like playing in the era of Ian Porterfield? Because strangely now, Eddie Levesky has actually come back to Reading. Obviously, he was Mark Bowen. That was kind of like your first manager after Ian Branford, who was obviously a Reading legend. How was it under Ian Porterfield? Yeah, can I just go back very quickly to, to, to a story? I just want to tell about Floyd Street. Talking about hard men, strong men now. You know, I said something in training, because I often did in those days, because, like I said, I had plenty of larap. And I said something, and, and Floydy sort of squared up to me. And Floydy was hard as nails. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, it, that's it, not it, a good situation, it, Aidy. No, <laughs> no it, it, it wasn't a good situation for, for, for many reasons. And I was only a young lad at the time, and this vastly experienced, great player, great human being, Floydy Street. So, and we squared up. And then it sort of got sort of just sort of separated. And that was that. And, and I remember going in the training ground, because it happened on the training ground, in the, in the, in the changing room. And I said to Mickey Gooding, actually, someone obviously I, I know very well, because Mick and Floyd knew each other well at Wolves. Yeah. And uh, I said to Mick, I said, Mick, I feel a little bit, I don't know what I feel, actually. I said, obviously, I didn't enjoy that situation. I'm a young kid, and I was. And in those days, Paul, you respect the senior players 100%, which we did. And I said, I feel uncomfortable, Mick. And Floyd, he was in the shower, getting showered. Gospel truth. And uh, he was a big man, Floyd. He powerful biceps, like guns you've never seen. And Mick said, if I was you, I would go in the showers now and apologise. I said, there's only Floyd in there. I said, what if he hits me or something, Mick? You know, there'd be no one to sort of back me up. He said, listen, the best thing you could do is front it, go in the showers and apologise. And I did, and I did. It was only Floyd in the shower, and I went up to Floydy and I said, Floydy, you know what? You know, I shouldn't have said what I said or whatever it was, Christ knows, 30 years ago now. And uh, I said, listen, mate, you know, I apologise. I respect you as a man. I respect you as a player. And do you know what he, he said to me, Paul? On my life and the respect I've got for her, he apologised to me. 
Yeah. He said, I should never have squared up to you. Floyd, he knew he could have killed me there and then if he wanted to. He could have flicked me and I'd have gone over. And he apologised to me. And that, and that proves, you know, what a lovely man and an honest fellow he was. Although, like I say, he could have killed me there and then if he wanted to. But I'll never forget that story. And they were all like that. All these hard men, but they were, you know, they were great people. Sorry, going back to your question, Ian Porterfield, real Mr. Motivator, Ian Porterfield. And, uh, you know, when he turned up, obviously no, no longer with us, sadly, but, you know, he, he, his motivation was, was his sort of um, strength for me. Uh, I can't really remember too much of the uh, tactics and, and the training and things like that. I can't really remember whether he took the I know he took certain sessions. A lot of managers take sessions. A lot of managers don't. But, uh, you know, he was one in the dressing room. I probably, out of all the managers I've had at Reading, and I've had loads, I've never actually counted them, how many I've had. He was the one that would get in people's faces in the dressing room and really get you fired up, 100%. That was what I remember about Ian Paul. Nice guy, ended sadly, unfortunately, at Reading because of circumstances and everything else that we all know about. But, you know, Eddie was his number two, and Eddie's a good guy. Eddie's a great guy in football. Always has been. I knew him through the Welsh setup, obviously, briefly under Sparky. Great guy, great coach, Eddie, for a goalkeeper. And I'm not talking goalkeeping coaching. I mean, you know, he's got great knowledge on the game. And it's great that he's back in football and, of course, just down the road. Yeah. No, it's, it's uh, weird, isn't it, how he went such a long period and he's come back. Yes, very good mug there. If you're listening, uh, 80s, you're drinking from the El Part Rolls mug. <laughs> so uh, that's more of a visual one than an audio one. But it's a kind of, it's strange in the windows, both of them. As a player, you played at El Part many times and you also played at the Medeski Stadium. How do you compare the two? Do you like look back at one with fonder memories or the other or is it both you enjoyed? I don't think you can compare the two. Someone once said to me, I was trying to work out who the best snooker player was. And it was when Steve Davis was at the top of his game. And how can you work out, was it Fred Davis, Joe Davis, Steve Davis? You can't. You know, you can't. George Best, Ryan Giggs. It's just different eras. And I think you've got to accept it for what it is at that time. And Elm Park was my education. It was brilliant. It was. I mean, it was a dive. And when Sir John obviously realised it was a dive, uh, you know, they did something about it. It needed to be, uh, well, revamped or, or knocked down, whatever way you looked at it. And thankfully, you know, we've got the Medeski Stadium now to play, which I have played at. But Elm Park, you know, was a great place to be. It, it was. We used to uh, we used to get trained in the away dressing room, the young boys, the YTS boys in those days. Obviously, we were apprentices until you played a professional game or maybe was a first year pro, you would never, never go in the home team dressing room. That was sacrilege. And that's how it was, you know, and it's great looking back. I used to clean the uh, urinals and the baths in the, uh, in the in the showers, in the bathing area. You know, lads used to do the uh, home team away team dressing room, the corridors, the referees room. And Ian Brantford was our manager, you know, on a Friday afternoon when we'd done the jobs ready for Saturday, he would check them. And if he went behind the radiator, those big cast iron radiators, and put his hand down there, we thought, oh, don't do that, sod off gaffer. And he'd find a bit of dust, we'd have to do it all again. On my life. And it was demoralising. But, you know, when you talk about discipline and, and you, you know, and, and, and keeping lads in check as well. It was, it was a great upbringing. But, you know, I can still see it now. The home team dressing room. The boot room was adjacent to the home team dressing room. Then you had the showers. And then if you walk through, you had the worst gym you've ever seen in professional football. 
If you walk through the gym, it'd only take you about two steps because it was that small. You'd go into the back end of the players' bar. It was just quirky, but it, it was great. The only thing I would say that I do believe that we lost a little bit of atmosphere mm. from Elm Park to Medeski Stadium. I know, obviously, rightly so, all seeing stadiums and everything else, but that's self bank back in the day. You know, I used to love it, particularly when Jugsy was flying up the wing. It was, it was good atmosphere. And I think we just lost a little bit of that atmosphere when we moved to the Madstack. No, no, I agree. I had some great nights at the uh, Elm Park in the uh, South Stand. South Stand. I'm ashamed of myself there. In the South Bank. <laughs> <laughs> I got oh, it right. Paul, oh, how could you do that? <laughs> no, that was... Sorry. One night that kind of like comes to memory is when we played uh, Tran... No, it would be Bolton. Right towards the end of the 94 season, 95. And it was 2-1 and Lee Nogan scores a late winner. I just, I don't know what it was. There's something magical about that night. Kind of like for me, it was one of the best nights of the end of Elm Park. There was a few more years, but that team was absolutely fantastic. And it kind of started when Mark McGee came in, didn't it? What a transformation he created to Reading Football Club. Yeah, I mean, let's start with Lee Nogan. Because when Reading, when Reading fans talk about strikers at Reading, and I've played with so many, you know, we rightly talk about Trevor Senior, Jamie Curran and, you know, long kits and Doyle, that era. Uh, you go back to Ron Blackman, you, you, you know, Nicky Forster, Martin Butler. We've had some great, Lee Dixon, Kerry Dixon, you know. <laughs> we've had some great strikers for Reading. But Lee Nogan's never mentioned. Nogan and Lovell were very rarely mentioned. And, and the goals they scored that era, that year, and, you know, those sort of two seasons were incredible. Yeah. And neither of them were brilliant in the air. Neither of them were quick, that quick. Neither of them were big men, you know, and it just clicked. And I, I do honestly believe they probably, no good and level, they don't get the credit they deserve. Because even me, when I think of Reading Strikers, you think of Trevor Senior, Long, Kitson, Doyle, Lita, whoever it may be, Forster, you know, obviously good mate of mine. But I think Nogan and Lovell, you know, should, should get more credit because they scored a hell of a lot of goals. Mark McGee, was interesting because when he turned up, he was a player manager. And I knew a little bit about him because he was a striker, obviously. And I think we played Newcastle a couple of times before he turned up, actually, in, in cut replays and things. And I think I was sort of part of the squad. And, of course, Quinn and McGee for Newcastle were a brilliant partnership. So I knew a little bit about him. And he came in. I just liked the fella, Paul. I just, he just had something about him. He was still a player, although clearly finishing very soon but he knew what the dressing room was about he knew what players enjoyed he knew what players didn't like but as a manager although player manager to start with i tell you what he got ready moving 100 percent. you know his style of play his team that he you know brought together if you like some some players like dubcheck and people like this his lot you think where have they come from and, and, you know, Mark McGee would never say really a bad word about Mark McGee. And I, I mean that. I know he gets stick, but he knows he's going to get stick. And he should get stick. But yeah. he was a good manager. Bloody good manager. Oh, a really good manager. Yeah, probably you could put that him back as in the kind of like the person who started the revolution at Red. And you got Pardew a little bit later, who really moved on when we went to the Medici Stadium. But he changed the whole style of play that we had. And made us more, just more enjoyable to watch. Like you say, some of the players you just mentioned having Darius Dubček in defence. I mean, that was a crazy signing. <laughs> it's just, how do we get a player of that ability in Shaka Hislop, like you say? It's just, 
And the player who stands out for me in that 94 season, though, is the best midfielder I've seen apart from Gilfie Sigurdsson is Simon Osborne. I mean, just a fantastic player. And he gets forgotten. I don't know why. He was magical. Absolutely magical for that one season. I mean, what's he like playing with those players in the team? Well, I know Aussie well because obviously we then went to Wolves together. So, you know, his family are similar ages, his children are similar ages to my children. And, you know, when we were at Wolves together, the girls obviously, you know, mix and the kids used to mix together. And Aussie's a great lad, you know, great player. Uh, scored some brilliant goals, brilliant on set play. I mean, we have been so lucky, Paul. How can anyone ever give a red in 11, you know? Because I saw one the other day, best red in 11. There was no Sidwell, there was no Osborne, there was no Harper, there was no Caskey. I mean, we've had some brilliant midfield. Kevin Dillon was a great player back in yes. the day for Reading. Yeah, you yeah. Know, Kevin Watson was a good player for Reading, set plays. Darren Caskey, one year, kept Reading in the division on his own. You know, so Osborne was as good as them. It was as good as any. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a strange one, Paul, because you can be a great player. You can be a good player, of course. But from a player's point of view, and, and thankfully I was captain of Reading for, for a few years, you want them to be good lads as well in that dressing room environment, on and off the pitch. And that, that era, that 94-95 that team, if you like, honestly, I would go on the pitch. I may have been wearing an armband, but I honestly believe you could have had eight captains on that pitch. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, that is such a key point. I've heard this from Liam Moore now. I've heard it from you. I've heard it from Paul McShane. I've heard it from Joe Tarragon. I've heard it from Noel Hunt. The team is not all just about ability. You've got to have the right characters in there because if you don't, it just splits up very, very quickly. You know that. You've been inside the dressing room. I mean, you've probably played in teams when it hasn't had that combination right and you see the other side of it. It's a kind of, yeah, that's what I think we're missing at the moment in some ways. But let's hope that we're moving forward whenever we start football again. But just that Mark McGee era, going to the playoff final, I know he wasn't manager then. I realised that. <laughs> it's a very toxic period. But he, that was his team, essentially. And winning the league, it's just really a time that the best period of Elm Park, I would say, towards the end. It was just a beautiful team to watch as well. So good on the ball, the passing, the movement, the goals. Just Jimmy Quinn. I could do a whole hour just talking about Jimmy Quinn and the goals he scored as well. Playing with I players. Can't believe, I can't believe I was talking about strikers and not mentioned Jimmy Quinn. Yeah, I came into my head as well. <laughs> but, but, but Quinny was incredible. He, he was. I mean, um, was he Mr. Popular in the dressing room? Probably not. Okay. Um, you know, he was so focused on scoring goals, but we knew he was the main man. You know, regardless to whether you were Shaka, whether you were Parky, whether you were me, whoever was wearing the armband, the captain, whoever it was, Jimmy Quinn was the main man, you know, because, you know, to score, what did he score? 30, 40 goals that season. I, I remember some of the goals he scored, and, and particularly, I think, that was it the last game at Elm Park against Brighton? Yes. He scored a, he scored a header. Yeah. Uh, he scored a header against Brighton. I saw it the other day. It was a brilliant header. And he also scored one against Birmingham. Uh, Martin Hicks, funny enough, was playing for Birmingham. It was a magnificent header. And, you know, Quinney was, was as good as anybody that I played with. You know, at that time, he was a big target man. In those days, it was very much a 4-4-2. You'd have a big man, someone a little bit smaller running off him, making the channel runs, hit the big fella. None better than Jimmy Quinn. But, you know, we could go on forever, Paul, because... 
you talk about that team and the spirit that we had, and we've all played in, you know, teams like that. You know, the 106 team would have been like that, 100%. You don't have that success without that as well, trust me. Andy Bunnell, where did Andy Bunnell come from? He was like, you know, a signing, you think, where did he come from? Even Dylan Kerr, you know, become a great, great player for, for, for Reading. Jeff Hopkins, where did he, you know, people thought maybe Jeff was on, on the way down or whatever. He was a great player for us. Keith McPherson, great player, great captain, you know, great trainer, great role model, great man. So it just gelled. And, and to be successful, although we were bloody unlucky to finish second, don't no. get me started. Everyone, everyone will talk about the Wembley game, but let's talk about finishing second, first and foremost. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, That's still upsetting. I mean, it's, it's the only time the team doesn't get promoted and I know you can all talk about the hypotheticals about like players and managers they all knew that before and the rest players but come on we finished second and we didn't go up I mean that's just unheard of and it's I don't know it just feels very reading to me it's kind of we get close to success but it's taken away from us but the playoff final as you were talking about you scored at Wembley Aidy and it's kind of that game has been blanked out by so many Redden fans, understandably. I mean, I was there. That's still the most, must, that's the one that hurt me the most about the player finals. That really, yeah, that, that still damages me. It still affects my, me. My, my playoff record's not good. I, I've been done in two semis, uh, one with Wolves and one with Reading, and two finals, both with Reading, one against Walsall, um, one against Bolton. And I think, to be honest, we should have beat Walsall and I think we should have beat Bolton, if I'm being brutally honest. So, you know, does it still hurt? It's a long time ago now. You know, it's a long time ago. It's a good story, you know. And, and for me, it was an incredible time for me because, like I say, going back and being cliche, I wanted to play for Reading. It was my club. And I think I fulfilled three ambitions in one day, you know, to play at Wembley as a kid. I always wanted to play at Wembley, you know, the Twin Towers. I still call it the Twin Towers now. It was always the place to be play at Wembley, which I did, obviously, to, to lead the team out, to be the captain, was special for me at Reading, of course. And, you know, let's be honest, we all kicked about in the garden years ago, and we always wanted to score a goal at Wembley. Yeah. And, and I did. So the result went against us, we know that. But do you know what? I actually was thinking about it a little while ago. And forget what might have been where we all would have ended up and in the Premier League or Premiership as it was, I think, then, and money we might have earned and the moves we might have got and this, that, and the other. I actually feel like crying for the lads, you know, because if ever I want something good to happen to those boys, that group of players, and I wanted them to go down in history, would have been to win that game. You know, I wanted... that They were so good, those boys, off the pitch, on the pitch, in the dressing room. We used to stick up for everyone. We used to argue. We used to, to scrap. We used to square up to each other. And then we'd go down in Caversham and we'd have a crisis meeting in the pub and we'd have a couple of pints and it'd all be forgotten. And I know it sounds a bit oh, sickening that I wanted to win that game because of those boys, but I did. I genuinely did. I, I wanted every single one of them to be part of the Reading squad, part of the Reading team that got Reading to the top flight the first time in the history because they were such great lads. Well, that's the mentality why you were captain though, Aidy, isn't it? You wanted to do it for everyone as well, not just yourself. Well, I wanted to do it. I, you know, I don't want to sit here and say, oh, you know, I did this and I did that and I wanted this and I wanted that because, you know, but I was thinking about it the other day and that's what I come up with. Forget where we might have been. Forget if we'd have had a few quid in the 
we'd have spent it by now, Paul, anyway. Well, let's be honest. We'll yeah. Know, you know? <laughs> but it was the fact that I wanted that group of players to go down in history. I was part of it. But for them, you know, I, I haven't got many pictures in my house, but I have got one beautiful photo. I should go and get it and show you. It's in black and white. And it's that team standing in a goal area, in the goal mouth at Wembley, about two hours before kickoff. And we're all standing there. We're all holding on to each other. It's a beautiful photo. And, uh, you know, it's right by my front door. And every time I come in, every time I go out, I just have a little look at it. So it brings back great memories. Disappointed with the result, but to, to be associated with that group of men, and we still are as well, which I love, I cherish. Yeah, that seems to be quite rare in football, that people seem to stay as friends afterwards. There seems to be a lot of like, well, it's like the same as in the office. People work together, they're work colleagues, but they don't actually get on afterwards when they leave because they actually have nothing in common <laughs> apart from the work. But the fact that you all seem to get on, you seem to be, you know, one of your friends seems to be Nicky Forrest as well from a slightly different era. And as you said, the other players as well. Um, if you could choose any one of those players, though, who would you least like to be isolated with, though? From which, which team? Which Just one? any team. Any team. Any professional player. Which player would you think would be the most challenging to be in self-isolation with? Uh, <laughs> well, Fuzzy's pretty challenging. We've had a few rare-ups, me and him. Don't worry about that, because yeah. he's like an old woman at times. So <laughs> when, when we used to room together, you know, we're both OCD, and I'm not sure that's a good match, both of you. So, <laughs> no, uh, that's not good. You're going to have different issues, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But I, honestly, I mean, I can read off names like Sammy Igo, like Ricky Newman, John Mackey, uh, Phil Whitehead, A.D. Vibash, A.D. Whitbread, people that forget about these names. But, you know, when you look at that Brentford, remember, obviously, Griffin Park, that, you know, you had Vivash, you had Phil Whitehead in goal. You know, Kuro was on the bench and... You know, Martin Butler, greater Darius Henderson. He followed me on Twitter yesterday. He, he popped up, Darius Henderson, big D. You know, he was a big, strong, powerful centre forward. Definitely. The answer to your question, let's try and think of it. Uh, oh, dear me. I, I don't know. We can, oh, we'll we can come back to that one at the end. We can come yeah. back to that one at the end. That's no problem. Yeah. So we have the 95, we have the loss at Wembley. Then we lose a lot of players. What is it like in the aftermath after losing a player final when you know major players are going to leave? And then were you thinking yourself, maybe this is the time to move on? Really good question, that, because in football, it never lasts for too long. You know, I think I look back and I think, I wonder what I'd have said to that group of players had we won that game. And I think you would have said, do you know what, boys, we're going to enjoy this because next season, I guarantee you, three or four of us won't even be here. You know, that's football. That's the nature of it. And I think that's what I'd have said. And obviously, Scotty Taylor left. You know, Scotty was a great player for Reading. Great player for Reading. Underestimated Scott Taylor. You don't realise how good someone is until you try and replace him. Shaka obviously left. No surprise. No surprise. Scotty left. No surprise. Shaka left. So the team was starting to to break up. And I think I left the following year. Yeah. So it's tough because Reading obviously more recently have been to Wembley and beaten in playoffs and then you've got to rebuild and then you've got to go again. You know, the Yapstan one, incredible really. You're in the playoff final, you know, one penalty kick away from winning, going into the Premier League in the next season, the manager loses his job and you're fighting relegation. So it just shows you in football, you've got to enjoy the good times because you just never know what's around the corner. 
But it was beginning to break up. Obviously, the manager side of the thing, as you say, Mark McGinn, uh, Mark McGee left just before Wembley. Quinny and Mick took over. You know, the writing was on the wall there, I think, with, with Mick and Quinny. I personally don't think nowadays joint managers work. That's just my opinion. If you nail me down, I'm not so sure. As a player, as a captain or whatever it was, I like to go and knock on the manager's door one person and have it out with him, you know. Uh, so the writing was on the wall, really. And then I guess, you know, ultimately, Paul, that was our chance to, to, to get into the premiership as it was at, at that point. And then we knew that, you know, players were going to disperse and, you know, to, to finish second with a group of players nobody's really heard of, you know that certain teams are going to come knocking because you know you're going to get them for a knockdown price as well. Yeah. No, Devin, as you mentioned, you then moved to Wolves in 1996. Can I, you, you have, you'd made that move? Um, because during that period at Wolves, you had a lot of injuries, didn't you? And you did get to the playoff semi-final and you did score in that semi-final as well in okay. the second leg. Um, How do you look back at that period at Wolves? I loved it. I'm so pleased I went uh, for a number of reasons. Ultimately, everyone's got a price, you know, and people say to me, why did you go? Well, ultimately, the football club agreed a price with Wolves uh, and they accepted that. I spoke to, obviously, Mark McGee, who was the manager of Wolves, someone that I knew, he knew me. So, you know, there was never going to be a bedding-in period because we knew each other so well. And I remember going up to speak to, to the gaffer, Mark, and we, we pretty much did the deal in 20... Well, we probably did it on the first tee. We went out of a game of golf and we mentioned it on the first tee. He said, what are you after? And I said, this. He said, how many years? I said, this. He come back with that. I come back with this. And before we both teed off, we pretty much had the deal done. That's how it was in those days. Yeah. Loved it. Great club. Great club. Steeped in history and tradition. I'm so pleased last few years, you know, they've been a force in the Premier League. So... So many wonderful people behind the scenes. I moved up to, to, to the Midlands. Uh, you know, once we sort of, myself and my wife at the time, we were looking at areas. We just literally, literally, my son was born. You know, we actually, thinking about it, we moved up when he was weeks old, days old, maybe. So it was really tough, particularly for my wife. And uh, it, it was hard, but I've got no regrets. Obviously, let's be brutally honest, financially, it was a good move for me as well. So, you know, that was appealing. But not only when you're signing a four-year deal, financially good move for you, you're going to a good club, a good club, big club. It's probably one of the biggest championship clubs at the time. You, you know, at that period, Definitely. they had players like Steve Ball, Jeff Thomas, Steve Froggett, Tony Daly, internationals established. You know, you have the likes of Robbie King coming through, some really good players coming through as well so it, it, it was always once I knew they were interested once Reading agreed a price it was done and dusted injury nightmares biggest regret of my life those well at footballing one of them four years at Wolves I was I had some real serious injuries cruciate ligaments I prolapsed disc in the neck you know I wasn't out for five six weeks I was out for five six months at time so that was the downside to it but would never ever say anything other than good words about Wolves Football Club. Loved it, loved the people, and I'm still friends with a lot of people up there now. Yeah, definitely. I, it's make, as an outsider, you can see the complete sense in leaving at that point. Because there's a point when you tip over and then you don't move. And it kind of like, yeah, you've got to make that move for your own finance and everything. And just to see what you can do. Because at that point, Wolves were far more likely to get promoted than us. 
So it was a logical thing to do. You end up coming back to uh, Reading in 2000 on a permanent deal and Alan Pardew is the manager. Now, if there has ever been a manager who now he's left and the way he did, who is Marmite, is Alan Pardew. For me, I think he did amazing work. He set it up, as I said earlier, with Mark McGee doing the earlier bit. I don't think if you didn't have Alan Pardew, you don't have the 106 team. That might like uh, agitate some people, but you work with him. How is he to work with? It's a progression. You know, when, when you're at a football club, you've got to lay the foundations. I think Mark McGee probably laid the foundations. Alan Pardew came in and took Red into the next level. I've always said this, and I always will. And Steve Coppola agrees with me. And anyone with any knowledge knows that Alan Pardew, if you work with him, he took Red into the next level. Now, was Alan Pardew Marmite? Yes, probably. You know, to me, he was great with me. He was great with me. He brought me back on loan first when I was coming to the end of my contract at Wolves, I think, and I was playing with people like Barry Hunter and Limboy Primus. Great lads, great human beings, good professionals, good players as well. Come back on loan, did okay. Probably a little bit better than okay, and he wanted to sign me permanently. And a lot of people said, should never go back. You know, it never works second time round. And Paul, I honestly believe I was playing my best football second time round. I, I, I felt I was fitter than ever before. I was a little bit more slimmer. I, I just felt I was playing better. And, you know, Pards brought me back and signed me permanently. And, yeah, did we have our moments? Yeah, definitely, you know. But we had so much respect for each other. And, you know, he made me captain. And, you know, one trait, I think, as a captain is, you know, you speak for the lads, you know. So if I was knocking on his door, he'd be like, oh, Christ, what do you want now? It's like, well, hang on, Gaffer, you know give me a chance, you know, the lads aren't happy about this or blah, 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 or I'm not happy about this. And, and he'd be like, oh, come on, sit down, blah, blah, blah. And we, we had so many run-ins, but I think at that time, it was obviously his first, I think, managerial uh, position, if you like. Uh, it was his first job as a manager. And does he look back and think he might have done things differently? I think so. You know, there was a little swagger in his step. I don't mind that. There was a touch of arrogance. I don't mind that. He was confident. I don't mind that either. But he wasn't everybody's cup of tea. But again, and I, I've been so blessed to play for so many good managers. And I genuinely mean that. There's a certain couple that I weren't that bothered about. But Pards, behind the scenes, he brought in a nutritionist. He brought in a sports scientist. He brought in people that would analyse you in training. We, we started wearing the heart rate monitors, the Prozone, the, the data. Took right into the next level. 100%. Steve Cobble then come in and one or two other managers as well, obviously, and, and the rest is history. But I agree, without Alan Pardew, without, mind you, you could say that to, to a lot of managers down the yeah. chain, but, but Pardew, a little bit Marmite, but I, I've only, I mean, I've got some great stories that, you know, we, we used to, we used, one story, let me tell you. So we're sat in the dressing room at, on a Sunday. We played on a Saturday and I was crap. I was crap, I remember it. I was hopeless. And I thought, you know what? We were playing on Tuesday. So the game's finished on Saturday. We possibly lost. I was hopeless. And even though I think I was established and the captain or whatever, I actually thought he might leave me out Tuesday. So we was in on the Sunday. So we're in on the Sunday and we've just done a little warm down at the Medeski. And we've gone in the dressing room. And... We've obviously got the big skip. Ronnie G, the kit man, had the big skip of flip-flops. You've got to wear flip-flops for hygiene in the showers. If you haven't got flip-flops, it's a fine. It's at every football club. That's the way it is. 
not a big fine, 10 or 20 quid, whatever it was at the time. So all the boys are getting their flip-flops and going in the showers, and I'm looking for mine. So the next thing, the manager, Pards, comes in and says, uh, AD says, uh, I want to have a chat with you. Two minutes. He said, I'll be in the office. Oh, bollocks, he's going to drop me, any Because that's the way he goes. You know, he wants to have a chat. He wants to tell me how crap I was yesterday, and he's leaving me out on Tuesday. So I said, all right, Gaffer, I'll be down in two minutes. I said, I'll have a quick shower. So I can't find the flip-flops. And these flip-flops, Fozzie will tell you, I got in Brazil. When I played Brazil for Wales, I bought some flip-flops, right? Big flip-flops, they were. I thought, that'll do me. No one's got any like them. Put your AW initials on them. No one's going to use them. They're mine. Couldn't find them. Couldn't find them. Of course, I used to collect the fine money pool. So I've had to go into the uh, shower without flip-flops on. The lad said, that's a fine. So they were loving it. 20 quid, blah, blah. So I couldn't find them anywhere. So I got changed. I thought, oh, shit, I better go and see the gaffer. So knock, knocked on his door. He's opened the door pods in a towel. He's only got a towel on and my flip-flops. <laughs> yeah. So he's opened the door and we know that he's going to drop me. So we know it ain't going to be a great conversation. And he's opened the door in a towel. And that's bad enough in itself when you're going in for a meeting to get dropped with a manager standing there in a towel. But to have my flip-flops on as well. So I looked, he said, come in. I said, hang on a minute. I said, they're my flip-flops. He said, are they? I said, well, the AW on them, for starters, is a bit of a giveaway. I said, well, they're not yours, are they? He said, well, no, they're not mine. I said, well, well first thing first, why you got them on? And I, I'm thinking, this is the manager, you know what I mean? He said, I don't know. I said, well, you've just cost me 20 quid because they're my flip-flops. He said, honestly, it's true. He said, do you want them? I went, yeah. I said, but it's a bit in late now, isn't it? You know? So he gave me the flip-flops. He said, well, do you want them now? I said, yeah, take them off now. I said, I'll have them now. So he's looked at me thinking, he's got his towel on. So he's taking his flip-flops and he's giving me my flip-flops. So I throw them down the corridor, my flip-flops. So we, you know, I'm pissed off with him for that. I know he's going to drop me. So he said, come in. He said, I'm leaving you out Tuesday. I said, I thought you were. He went, see you later. I went, yeah, see you later. And, and that was it. But, <laughs> You know, well, hundreds of stories like that. And I can't remember. I think maybe John Mackey played. Uh, I think it was a Matty Upson sort of era just before Matty Upson come in. But John was a great player. No, no, no grudges with John. I think John actually wore the armband for a little bit as well. Yeah, he did, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so great lad, John. Real London boy. Great. You know, I had no problem with that. But thankfully, I guess I got back in the team at some point and, and stayed there. But Pods, you know, he was Marmite, but I only ever loved him. Yeah, no, he's definitely, um, you can't deny what he achieved with the club. Um, it'd be impossible if you look at the fact that then we move on to like, we talk about the next season when we get promoted and all that and a bit later. But just look at what he set up and what he's done in his career going forwards. He's clearly a talented manager. He's had his issues. There's no doubt on that. And he's definitely still got that bit of arrogance about him. That dance in the FA Cup final, I think it's very Alan Pardew when they score. Yeah, do you know what? Do you know what I love when pards come in, Paul? Footballers, I think, are very visual. So if a manager says, I want you to do something, pards was still in good shape. He was in really good shape. He wasn't long finished as a player and a bloody good player as well. So he would show me what he wanted me to do. And he would show the boys what he wanted. And he could do it. Trust me. I mean, he could. this is what I want you to do. He'd get the ball, open yourself up, and he'd smack one 50 yards. And it'd be on, I don't know, Tony Rouge's chest or Sammy Igo's chest, whatever it was. And then he'd say to the centre midfield boys, obviously that's where he played 
this is what I want you to do, and round the corner outside of his foot, and this, that, and the other. And, you know, you have to give the manager respect, because he's still at it. He could still play. You know, he was a good player, you know, clearly a very good player. And he was still in good shape. So rather than a lot of managers saying, I just want you to do this, and standing on the sideline, you know, he definitely, of, of all the that, he took every coaching session, Puds, every session he took. Yeah. No, well, it, it showed all detail, wasn't it? I mean, he really was uh, successful. But talking earlier about the atmosphere, I think one of the best atmosphere was in the 2001 season in the semi-final against Wigan at the Medeski Stadium. In that last minute, and you were playing in this game, you'd had a lot of injuries leading up to that game, hadn't you, Amy? Yeah. That, yeah. 100% for me, I know we talk about ledge scoring against Follis. To, to get into the Premier League, absolutely. I was there working, you know, great atmosphere. And I've been there many, many times with brilliant atmosphere. None better than that night. That was incredible. You couldn't even write that script. You know, we were, what, 1-0 down with, like, two minutes remaining. It was, it was almost like a, a Manchester United Champions League thing, wasn't it? When you, when yeah. you look back at yeah, it. it. was. It was completely crazy. And it kind of came from nowhere, really. We were trying, trying. But we weren't actually getting there. And then just, no. just like... Oh, yeah, you can. It's going to happen now. Nicky Forster comes on and just transformed the game, didn't he? Well, I can see Foz now. I've seen it many times. You know, he, he was flying down the right side. He cut inside. You know, they took him over for a penalty. And we have to remember that Kuro missed a penalty. That was the funny thing. I mean, you know, we scored the rebound. But it was an incredible finish to, to an incredible season in a, in a way. But Fozzy just had that pace, that always scared defenders, particularly in, in, in those days, Paul. I mean, that Wigan side, by the way, you know, they were a good side. Yeah. You know, you had Carolyn Gull, you know, obviously went on to, I think, play for Man United, a very yeah. experienced player in the Premier League. You had Arjun Dazu as the captain, big, strong, powerful fella. You had, was it Martinez in yeah. midfield, the ex-Everton yeah. manager. You had some good strikers as well. You, you know, it's a good side. So, um, but that atmosphere... I've never witnessed anything like that. If I could bottle any atmosphere, even the Wembley, you know, even going 2-0 up, scoring a goal, 2 nil up, wouldn't even a patch on that night at the Medeski. That's the best I've ever heard the atmosphere at the Medeski Stadium. And, uh, yeah, it was brilliant. And I, we did a little lap of honour at the end. And I was walking with Foz. We're, we're big mates, Foz. And uh, we roomed together. And I, I said, geez, he, and, you know, he, he's, he's very humble, Foz. You know, he's like, the lads were brilliant, blah, 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 blah. I said, Foz, shut up for Christ's sake. You've won this game on your own. You've come on and destroyed them in five minutes. And, and that's the, yeah, well, I'm not so sure. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but then again, the, the sod cost us at Wolves as well because he come off injured. And He's when he come selfish, off injured, isn't he, sometimes? I mean, that's what it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, a, a great player. And a great player to play up front on his own. A lot of people used to think, Paul, you've got to be a big man to play the lone striker. You've got to be the opposite. You've got to be someone who can, can you know, run the channels and, and hurt defenders with pace. And Boswell's electric, electric on his day. Yeah, I think he's underrated. I mean, I know there's lots of fans that do like him a lot around him, but I, I think he was far better. If we had him now, he would have fitted our system so much in the last few years. He's brilliant up front on his own. And did he score all the goals? Maybe he should. No, he didn't. But he created so many just by his movement, his pace. No, I, I'm a big fan of his, definitely. So we then move on to the next season, which we all know, if you're Reading fans, was, I'd say, our most important season in our recent, like, last 50 years. Getting promoted at Griffin Park 
But before that, we just kept on drawing, drawing, drawing. What was it like in that changing room at that point? You'll probably know more than me, really, because, you know, it sort of comes and goes again, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, mm. Tuesday. You've got so much to think about. But as a fan, like I am now, I can remember games much more than when I played in them. But as you rightly so, you know, for, for a while we were odds on, you know, to, to, to get promoted comfortably, really. And then, I don't know, the last 12 games or so, I think we probably threw about nine of them. You know, we weren't losing, so we weren't not confident. We weren't sort of lower than a snake's belly or anything, but we, we wasn't getting beat, but we just couldn't win football matches. We were drawing, 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 which, let's be honest, knowing that when we went to Brentford, as long as we didn't lose, mm. we, we'd be promoted, that was all right. Because, um, you know, everyone said, well, they've drawn a lot of games. Well, do you know what? We haven't been beaten many times and you've got to beat us today. So I remember the game more than most because I was at fault for our goal, okay. 100%. Lloyd Awusu, uh, I was trying to be a little bit clever out wide and I was waiting for the ball to drop and then he hit me and, and then he ended up going in and, and scoring or someone scoring. I, I've always blamed myself for that goal. But I did clear one off the line right at the end, so I'll I, I take that <laughs> on the chin as well. But um, again, you know, we talk about Super stubs, we talk about the fox in the box, we talk about Alfie, what he used to do for Reading coming off the bench, scoring vital goals. Jamie Curran, you, you know, and Shit. I've seen that goal more times than any other goal in the history of Reading Football Club because I was playing and because of anniversaries and because of, you know, the way it was 1 0 down away at Brentford, local derby, and the way he steadies himself, Paul. He just gives himself like great goal scorers do, just that split second. You, I can see it now. The ball's bounced. And if it was me, I said to Kuro, I'd have just hooked it and it had gone over or it had gone wide. But he waited. It was almost like... Yeah. And, and that's what good strikers do in that pressurised situation. And it was quite nice to see Ingemarsson Eva, one of my colleagues, flying into the back of the net trying to clear <laughs> it and... I think City was playing as well, wasn't he? Yeah, Brentford? yeah, there was loads of them, wasn't there? Because obviously I had Coppel yeah. there at Brentford as well. Yeah. It was like a whole combination of, uh, yeah, it was like an, a future Reading FC team we're playing yeah. against. But yeah, you're right. Watching Inga Marston struggle there is a lovely picture. Yeah. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I keep reminding He so rarely did that when he was at Reading <laughs> as well. He's such, he was such a good defender. But I don't know. It's a kind of, for me, when I've been to the events that you host as well for the former Players Association, I remember Jamie Curitan talking about strikers and that moment. And he said, it's about being calm whenever anything else around you is going crazy. That yeah. split second, like you described, is just so incredible because it looks like a simple finish, but it's not. It's not a simple finish at all. But changed the whole of our history. And the celebrations afterwards must have been amazing, Andy. Yeah. And again, there's pictures on social media and... You know, the drive back down the M4, which we all know is only about half an hour drive anyway, really. You know, it was it was amazing. Everyone, I mean, I think we'd have been locked up now, Paul, because we got on the coach, we we, we opened the, you know, the roof, we yeah, the, on the top of the roof. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we got out through the little, you know, like getting in the loft. We got up on the top of the bus and we were spraying the beer and the champagne and we had people like Sammy Igo, Phil Parkinson, John Mackey up there, you know, it was it was a great feeling to do it finally, you know, to get promotion, uh, to come back to the Madstad because we come back to the Madstad I think at the time, and there was a bit of a party, and of course we we 
we weren't shy in those days, Paul, to, 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 to celebrate it. And we're sure the Purple Turtle got, got hit and stuff. But um, it, it was great to, like I say, with, with, with that group of players as well. Uh, Pards was the manager. I still see, you know, the full-time whistle. Pards is sat there and the whistle goes and he gets up and he just clenches his fist and he goes and shakes Steve Cobble's hand. You know, very humble. It was his former manager at Palace. So, you know, there was no... How can I say it? We weren't bragging or we weren't over-celebrating. We wished Brentford well because they were in the playoffs, obviously. And, and we obviously, you know, we knew one or two of their players. I knew one or two of their players really well. We wished them well. And then we parted. And that, that end at Griffin Park and the drive back and everyone on the motorway, blue and white scarves, banging, you know, blowing their horn and out the windows. Brilliant, brilliant. Fun memories. Yeah, definitely. It's, like I said, many times, like I said to Jamie Curitan as well, it's the biggest game moment, however you want to look at it, in the last 50 years or so. Just so pivotal you, with the new stadium. Could you with name the that team? Could you name that team? Oh, God, naming that team. Oh, no, I feel the pressure now. It must have been Nicky Shorey, must have been yourself, obviously. And alongside you, oh, damn, my brain. You've got Gray Murty in there, Phil Whitehurst, Phil Whitehead, sorry. You'd also have in midfield, you'd have Parkey. <sighs> my brain, when my brain go, because I always put Curitan in the starting 11 and he's not in uh, the starting 11, he comes uh, off the bench. You name it, maybe. Who have I left out? Well, no, no, it's a tough one. And I'm not putting yeah. you on the spot. It's a tough one. But I think Sammy Igo was yeah. involved. Yeah, I think been, John yeah. Salako was involved. Yeah. You know, Fozzie, obviously, mm. started up front. Uh, just try Andy Hughes, I think. Uh, AD Probably, Vibash, yeah. Probably, yeah. Vibash played alongside me because yes, Vibash was the one who did the big, big punt up to Parky to put yes. it on for Kuro. Yeah, so, Parky yeah, flicks it on, and then yeah, no, it's such a an amazing memory when you look back at it. It's such, it feels like such a different world, though, in so many ways. The kind of football, it seems like a different club to where we are now. Do you think it, that's true? It, it, when you see the cool. inside of the club, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a long time ago. You know, yeah, it's, it's a long, a long time, time ago. ago. <laughs> yeah, but we've got the same it's... stadium. But then we get promoted to the championship as it is now. And uh, we kind of like we do really well in the first season. How, what were your memories of that first season under Pardew? Uh I don't know so much about that season. But I know we, we had a record up until, oh, cry, I don't know when it was, five, six years ago or so, that we never finished below ninth. Mm. in the championship which you know it doesn't sound brilliant but for a side that that long ago wasn't in you know that long ago wasn't in the in the top two tiers of football you know when I first started at Reading we were struggling in leagues three and four and mm. you know relegation promotion relegation a bit of a yo-yo club so to get into the championship and play I don't know what it was say 10 years 12 years whatever it was in the championship and not to finish below ninth yeah. I think that's a I think that's a good record so uh, I can't necessarily remember too much about the the following season, other than we must have had a decent season. You know, we we, we wouldn't have been one of the favourites. There were some big clubs in the in the championship at the time. What makes a big club? You know, everyone tells me this is a big club, that's a big club, this is a big club. I don't really know what a big club is. You know, is it support? Is it history? Is it what? It, what is it? I don't know. But at the at the end of the day, I, I just know that. For a long time in the championship, we didn't finish below ninth. And I was quite proud of that. Yeah, no, definitely as a fan, I was as well. That was way above when we first started going and felt like we should be there as well. We felt like we had the right team and the right setup and everything behind the scenes. Um, 
yeah, now it's a bit different, but we can move on from that. <laughs> it's kind of... But that's a good point. That's a good yeah. point, Paul, because behind the scenes, you know, we've all said it, and I've been lucky enough to be in the dressing room probably, well, only nine players have played more games than me, I think, for Reading. So, you know, I've been in the dressing room for a Reading team for, for a long time with managers and, and, and seen behind the scenes. And it's a cliche, but we were like a family. So John was the chairman. You know, there was only... Ian Woodsmith and Nigel Howe in the boardroom as well. You know, we had a manager. We had, uh, he, he, he run everything to do with football, probably transfers in those days pretty much as well. The board and the owner and the chairman, whatever, you know, they did their thing there. They, they got their books in order and we weren't spending and hemorrhaging millions of pounds. So, you know, I, I do believe to, to, to get it right, everything has to be in order. Yeah, I totally. We can see that more than anything else at the moment. Uh, key players leaving and all the people behind. I don't mean on the pitch like Nicky Hammond. These are people that transform the club. But 2003-04 was the season that you left. Um, you kind of had a discussion, didn't you, with Steve Koppel and this player called Ibrahano Sonko also came into the team in the situation. How did that go with the conversation with Steve? Well, I decided... And I remember this as if it was yesterday, and I haven't got a great memory, but I decided that I was going to play. It was my final year. And after 12 games, I was going to go and knock on the door. Now, with due respect, if you are not playing, if you've played 12 games and you're third from bottom, it's not a good time to go and knock on the door to ask for a, a new deal. Uh, but as it happened, I think I was playing, I was captain. Uh, Steve was a manager, Steve Koppel. We played 12 games. I stuck to it and I went and knocked on his door. And I think, I think, I'm guessing that we were like somewhere fourth or something. I think maybe in the top six. We, we were doing, we might have been second, third, I don't know, but we were doing okay. And more importantly, I guess, selfishly, I was doing okay. I was fit and I was playing. I was captain. So I thought, well, I'm going to knock on his door. So at the time, there was this pathetic policy at Reading that if you're over 30 you can't get deals you can't you, you know you're past it this that and the other well that used to drive me mad and not just because of me I was of that age but I look at other players that were you know they were still playing well they were still playing week in week out and they were still a big part of the team a big part of the squad so anyway knocked on the door and I said to the gaffer he said yeah and, and, and the manager Steve Cobble never used to have meetings in his office he would always go for a walk with you, maybe around the pitch, or we're going to sit in the referee's room, might go in the dressing room, but he would never have confrontation in his office. Because he always said to me, if you're sat one side of the desk and I'm sat the other side and we're opposite, even if there isn't really any friction or there is a barrier between us, and, and that's, you know, and I, I respect that. So this one time we, we went up the steps, up the Madstad, and we were having a little walk around the pitch. I said, Gaffer, listen, you know, Contract up at the end of the year, end of the season. Uh, play 12 games, think I'm doing okay. Skipper, you're playing very well. He would be saying like that. I'd say, well, that's good because I'm after a new deal. Just keep going and we'll chat near at a time. I said, Gaffer, that's no good to me. I said, I've got two kids, I'm married. You know, I need to know what I'm doing. You know, I played 12 games. I said to myself, I'm going to knock on your door. Just keep going. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're playing well. We're doing well. Not a problem, Skipper. I said, well, I'll add a bollock, Gaffer. I said, because, do you know what? You could be sacked tomorrow. You could be the next Manchester United manager. Next week, you might not be here. 
someone comes in, doesn't fancy me, we've all been there. We've all got these permutations. As a player, you think of every little permutation you can when you're negotiating. And I said, I might get injured Saturday. I might be out for four months. Where does that leave me? I said, Gaffer, now's the time. I want a new deal. You can't have a new deal. I want a new deal. You can't have a new deal. I want a new deal. We're going on, going on, going on. I said, well, put me up for a transfer then. He said, I can't do that. I said, he said, how can I do that? We're, we're, we're going well in the league. You're the captain. You're playing week in, week out. He said, something along the lines, I'll be lynched or something. He said, I can't put you up for sale. I said, well, you're not giving me a contract. You're not doing anything for me. I said, I need to, to, to get a contract. I need security from my family. I want it here, obviously. I'd love to stay here. I'd love to be here another 10 years. Not going to happen, not going to happen. We had this discussion when we were walking around the pitch, walking back to the office and uh, back to his office. And I was walking next to him and I was pleading, Gaffer, you've got to do something for me, blah, 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 blah. And he turned around and he said, I'll make you available. Now, I've got to be honest, Paul. Did it hurt? Probably not because I'm a realist. I knew Sonko was signed to replace me. Sonko was fitter than me, he was stronger than me, he was quicker than me. He wasn't as good as me, but he, I'm only joking. <laughs> I'm only and he's a lovely lad as well. So I knew that my days were coming to, to an end. And, you know, I, I, I kept fighting off centre-halves when they were signing him, and, I, I, and I'm proud of that. But Sonko I knew was going to be a decent player, and I knew the gaffer was taking Red into another level. So it wasn't like I was really peed off or anything like that because I did expect it. I thought maybe I was worth another season, but long-term picture, the gaffer wanted to change it. Got no problem with that. So he made me available, and literally, I was, I was however way you look at it, very fortunate in a way because Adrian Heath spoke to me. He was the assistant at Coventry. The manager was Peter Reid. Obviously, those two big friends from the Everton days in the 70s, brilliant players, the pair of them. And I went to commentary and I loved it. Peter Reid was an unbelievable man's man as a manager. And Inchi, Adrian Heath, he was one of the best storytellers I've ever met in football. And I enjoyed it when they were, when they were at the football club. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for them. And I spent two and a half years there and I, and, and I enjoyed it. Nice people at commentary, nice people. And I was lucky enough, I guess, in a way to play at the old stadium, uh, Highfield Road. And then obviously they moved to the Rico Arena and I, I was lucky enough to play there as well. Yeah, no, talk about the Coventry area. Then you kind of like also, was it Millwall? And then you went to another team, which is local to us, which is almost in the forbidden zone on this podcast. But yet again, it's going to come out, and that is Swindon. And I spoke to the assistant manager recently, Noel Hunt, and it was almost painful for me. He's <laughs> talking about that <laughs> cup. <laughs> but uh, well, he's right, because like he was saying, I didn't realise there was this so much of a rivalry, because we haven't played them for so long. Yeah. Obviously, in your era, AD, we did play Swindon. There was a famous game with Archie Lovell doing an impersonation of uh, Fjortov with the airplane when he scored a hat-trick, which yeah. we all enjoyed. And if you were there, you'd remember. But how was your time at Swindon? Because you were assistant manager and coach then, weren't you? Yeah. The reason why that happened was because of commentary. Dennis Wise um, was playing a commentary. And I met Wise. He, obviously, I was playing for commentary. He was playing for commentary. And again, popular to... People's opinion about Dennis Wise, lovely fella, lovely fella, lunatic on the pitch. Like, you know, I, I played against him. My mum's got a brilliant picture of me. I got sent off at the at the new den going straight through Wisey. We were 1-0 down with about 30 seconds left. And I thought, this is my time. This is it. And it was bad because I knew I was going to get sent off. And I, 
and walloped him, gone straight through him. And it's a great picture. My mum's actually got it on her wall. And she's quite proud of that, my mum. But um, So I knew YZ and he left Coventry uh, to, to join Swindon and he took Gus Poyet as his number two now. I'm not being funny, Paul. When you're coming to the end of your career and Dennis Wise and Gus Poirier want you to be their captain, you know, you listen. For me, tongue-in-cheek a little bit, I've always thought of Oxford, really. I don't yeah. know why, as Reading's main enemy. I mean, maybe when I first started, it might have even been Aldershot, but I thought, yeah. you know, Oxford were probably bigger enemies at the time than Swindon. Maybe I was trying to convince myself, but I, I still think that. If someone says to me, what do you think is the best derby? I think it's a Reading Oxford me. Personally. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Really, yeah, yeah. You know, that's and then and, and then yeah, that was it. You know, why is he said, uh, "Do you want to come to Swindon? It's a bit closer for you." Which it wasn't, in all fairness, because I lived the other side of Reading. I wasn't that far from the M40, and we used to train for Coventry, not far from Warwick. So it wasn't a bad drive. But when he said, I said, "Well, I've still got six months, nine months left on the contract at Coventry." They come to a. a, a you know, a deal, we agreed a deal, I got paid up, whatever it was for the remainder of my contract, and went to Swindon, Dennis Wise, Gus Poyer, we even had Paul Linton occasionally as well, so, you know, someone looking to go into coaching, someone to look into, to, to, to gain a bit of experience before you hang up your boots, it was a no-brainer, I was getting older, I was getting slower, uh, we were, I was dropping down a division, Swindon were, I don't know, League two, maybe one, or I can't remember where it was at the time. And then obviously it didn't work out for Wisey, and it didn't work out for many managers actually at the time of Swindon. We had a bit of a, you know, it wasn't a, a, a great era probably in the football club. I think we had one promotion. Paul Sturrock was a manager, Danny Wilson was a manager, Morris Malpaz was a manager. We had some big managers, you know, it's big names there. Yeah. yeah, big names, and, and you know, people that have done good things in their CVs, but. I was coming to the end of my career and ultimately when I was 30, I, I, I did my uh, cruciate ligament on my other knee because I did the other knee when I was at Wolves and rehab and everything was a bit longer. I did a bit of coaching. I was, the, the writing was on the wall and to, to get to 38, I'll take that. Yeah, 38, that's not an early finish, is it really? I don't think so. Yeah. A lot of players have to finish a lot earlier than that. You then move on and you move into the kind of world of management with Bedford Town and Didcot Town. Now, how do you look at that back at that period as well? Because management is such a tricky situation. You see so many players, you brought up Kevin Watson, he's been involved with so many clubs as managers, hasn't he? It's so hard to get kind of on that ladder. Yeah. I totally respect uh, people in non-league as players backroom staff managers, because it is so tough. So tough. People like Neil Baker, John Underwood, doing a brilliant job at Slough. You know, Kevin Watson was at Hungerford. Ian Herring, you know, doing a job at, uh, you know, basically with his hands behind his back with budgets and things like that. But great lad, great football man, knows everything there is to know about non-league. It's frustrating, Paul, ultimately, because, you know, you can get up Saturday morning, you can look at your team, and you know what? You can get three messages or phone calls because one of the boys is on the building site and he's been offered to work, double his money, cashing out, whatever it is, you know. Uh, two or three other lads have got to work, or, or the Litland's not well, or the missus is not well. And you actually think, wow, this, when you've been in professional football for so long, you've got to pull your hair out because you think, oh, my God, my plans have just gone from actually expecting to win a game of football. Now I'm thinking, well, there's maybe two or three of my better players out now. 
I do well to draw this game today. And, and it's frustrating. Budgets are frustrating because, obviously, you know, depending where you are, you know, if, Steve Koppel said to somebody once, and I was quite surprised that he said it, and I think you've heard him say this as well, Paul. I was doing a Q&A with the gaffer and someone asked him what makes a good player or how do you get, how do you sign good players? And he just basically said money. And everyone was like, oh, money. Normally, the more money I've got as a manager, the better player I'll get you. And that's, you know, pretty much a fact. You, you know, you get your, your little gems like Kitson and Doyle and, and Long and, you know, and we've had many at Reading, many I could be here for a long time. But ultimately, in the world of football, if you're given more money, you'll get a better player. And that's the problem. And when you go down lower, you realise, you know, that these boys are just picking up a bit of petrol money or, you know, it doesn't even pay a quarter of the mortgage. So if they get offered to work on a Saturday morning for double time, you've got to you respect it and say, you know. So I dabbled. I enjoyed it. Why I did Bedford. I mean, I was grateful. Don't get me wrong. I was really grateful. But have you ever tried getting a Bedford on a Friday afternoon or uh, a, a Tuesday evening when the M25 is closed or something like that? And I was doing it. I, I think I had a, a nice BMW at the time, big five series it was. And I was doing it literally for petrol. And I was I was leaving, I don't know, Reading, I don't know, to, to be there for about six o'clock. I was leaving about three o'clock because I'm thinking M25 could be anything. You know, it could be three hours, could be three days to get to Bedford. And I was doing it, I was getting home at 12 o'clock at night after training. And when I look back, the good thing is, it wasn't about the money, it was about the experience. The chairman was a great man, he was a lovely man, he gave me the opportunity. And the first year was one of my proudest years because we kept the lads up, kept the lads up and you know they were probably one of the favorites to get relegated. And it went to the, to the wire, to the last game and we had to win the last game at home and we did and it, it was brilliant. I mean, people might think, well, you're in, I don't know, the ninth tier of the pyramid, whatever it was. But let me tell you, the enjoyment at five o'clock as a, as a manager for a non-league side, keeping them in that division, you know, is as good as scoring the winning goal at Medeski Stadium on a Tuesday night against Leicester or whoever it was, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I went and did caught great people. I've been lucky. I've been blessed because whoever I've played with, whoever I've worked for, They've been bloody good people. I hope they say the same about me. <laughs> well, we'll have to get some of them on, won't we, Amy? <laughs> uh, no, no. <laughs> no, I think overall is like, uh, if I mentioned you on the podcast before, it's always uh, good things. So then eventually you move into the world of broadcasting with Radio Berkshire. How did you find the kind of like the transition period moving from being a player? And it's a few years distance since you'd left Reading, but... So obviously you're a fan, you're from the area, you've captained them, you've, got, you've done everything a player could do. How is it then going to talk to the manager when you give opinions about them on, because that's your job? How do you find that? Well, first things very quickly, when I started, I wasn't sure whether, you know, it was going to be for me. I had a lovely boss at the time, I've got a lovely boss now, but at the time she said to me, would you like to get involved? And I sort of said, yeah, let's go. I remember my first game, I was actually doing mix role, if you like. I was actually co-commentating on the game and it was at Scunthorpe. And trust me, you, you're not doing it for the money. And That's not a glamour down. one. I've been to that ground. <laughs> that is well, not a glamour one. So that's quite a journey uh, there and back. I think it was an evening game as well. You know, So it wasn't even a Saturday afternoon. It was at 7.45 kickoff. So you can imagine what time I got back home. Knackered and everything else because you're not used to it. But it grew and it grew and 
I think ultimately, I think they were pleased with what I was doing. I was pleased what they were doing for me. And, you know, if you love football, if you love sport, it's, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Your question is a really good question because it's one of the hardest parts of the job. How can you say to a mate of yours, to Brian McDermott, Brian, you know what? I thought that performance was crap tonight. Or are you fearful of your job? Do you think you should remain as a manager? You know, these questions, when he's looking at you, I'm thinking, blimey, eh? we were having a drink last week or whatever it was. But yeah. you've got to get over that. Mm. You've got to get over that. And do you know what, Paul? I, I think uh, managers respect you for asking the questions that need to be asked. And I don't think I ever sat on the fence as a player. And I'd like to think I don't sit on the fence. You know, obviously, Tim interviews managers normally and I pop up with the odd question or two and if I think well you know it's a question that I think the fans would want answered it's a question that I'd like to to hear the answer to I, you know I, I'll dive in and, and ask it but we have been lucky as a, as, a, as broadcaster that the Reading managers they have been blimmin nice people and it is quite tough Paul Clement when he was the manager of Reading I saw him at Wentworth for the for the golf and we must have had a chat for about an hour and a half. And, he, you know, I then saw him at an airport. He was going uh, to Italy. I was going somewhere. And we had a coffee and sat down and had a chat. I think this was after he lost his job. It, it's tough because, you know, managers know ultimately it's about results. And, you know, if, if, if you don't get the results, Jose Gomez, prime example, we used to love interviewing Jose. Absolutely 100% questioned his appointment. Still can't believe he got the job. But when he got the job, we wanted him to be successful. Didn't work out, but we still love him. Yeah, I mean, Jose Gomez is a prime example, isn't he? He's kind of, um, you recently did the podcast with him as well. How do you kind of like find a relationship when you kind of know someone, results are being bad for a long period of time and they're still saying things along the lines of what well, it's not all about the results. And I, I, I listened to that podcast. And I think that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I understand what you're saying. He created the relationship back with the fans. He definitely did. Yeah. But ultimately, it's on the pitch, isn't it? Well, it was a strange one, the Gomez one, if you think about it, because his results weren't great. But his job when he turned up was to keep Reading in the championship. Mm. So his first game was away at Millwall. I think it was around about Christmas time. And the results weren't amazing, but like he said to me, forget the numbers. My job was to keep Reading in the championship, and he did that. So you have to respect that. That's what his job was, and that's what he did by hook or by crook. Um, it, it is hard because it is all about winning football matches, but I personally wouldn't sleep at night or look at myself in the mirror if I was tippy-tapping about somebody. You know, In the dressing room, if I had a bad game, I'd like... Darius, Keith McPherson, Parkey, Evering, Gamarson, Sonko, whoever it was to say to me, you know what, you've got to pull your finger out here because that ain't good enough because that's what I would like personally. And, you know, if we're losing every week or every other week and we're struggling and we're fighting relegation, I can't say to the manager, do you know what, I think we'll be okay and all nicey-nicey. You've got to ask one or two tougher questions, I think. And I think... Ultimately, even if they are unfortunately sacked, they do have respect for you in the long run. Yeah, well, it's, the thing yeah. is now with social media is that if anyone comes out and says something that's not necessarily backing the club, it's seen as negative straight away, isn't it? So whatever you're saying is seen as a bad thing. But sometimes you just got to point things out and say why that is. And if you give a reason why that is, it's fine. 
you're just giving out unconstructed like arguments saying I don't like that kind of like thing that doesn't work but I do think the social media has such a massive impact how much do you think it would be like back in your day if you'd had it then it would have been a complete game changer wouldn't it yeah mate yeah it would have been a complete game changer I'm not sure it would have been a good thing back in the day I don't know what my thoughts are with players on it because I used to think you're just really putting yourself on the platform for criticism and no one really likes criticism and you know if you've got a huge follower which obviously clearly some of these top players have you know and I'm sure they read the comments you know I'm not I'm not I'm not so sure the real big stars would read all the comments you know because they get so many in the space of 10 minutes they'll have 20,000 comments or something but you know obviously Liam does a lot Liam Moore on social media which is great I've got no problem with that it's a connection between him the team the squad the football club and the Reading fans and I think that was something that had to change because if you'd have asked me three four five years ago I, I, I wasn't comfortable with that Paul I wasn't comfortable that there, there didn't seem any connection between the fans and the players and the football club. You know, obviously Sir John uh, left and new owners came in and new boards and chairmen and things like that. Agents come in and managers come in and backroom staff come in, players come in. And, and there didn't seem a connection. So I've got no problem with, you know, these players going on there. But the problem is, obviously, clearly, if they have a bad game or they do something, unfortunately, get sent off or miss a penalty, then, of course, you know, you're open to criticism. But I think Leon's been doing great. He's been, you know, obviously you, you, you've spoken to him on the podcast, uh, podcast. You know, he's even said to, to Reading fans, if, you know, it's tough and you're struggling, by all means, message me and I'll give you a call. We'll have a chat. He's a good player for Reading. He's one of the big players for Reading. Uh, he's one of the big earners as well. So, you know, I think, does that matter? It probably does to, to, to Reading fans. That, you know, that he's getting paid all this money. So can he give a bit back? And he is giving a little bit back. You know, he's put himself out there. And Tom McIntyre, you know, he's been doing all this FIFA stuff, whatever it is. I can't keep up with it. I'm not a gamer at all. You know, but it's nice to see it. It's nice to see it. And, you know, social media is what it is. It's a great tool. We love it, don't we? We love it when it's football. You could be out. You could be in a restaurant. You're checking your phone. You shouldn't be. You sat there having a meal, or whatever you're doing, you know. But we all do it, Andy, don't we? And we all do it, and you don't miss a trick. And it, it, it's a great platform, you know. If you, you don't miss a beat on on social media, but again, like I say, you know, sometimes it, it gets a little bit naughty, and uh, it, it's yeah. not pleasant sometimes. But you know, yeah, some of it is targeted. I'm glad you brought up Tom McIntyre because when I see Tom McIntyre, I see a lot of you. Definitely on the pitch. I see a lot of traits that he's got that you had. And it's very similar. Reading born, Reading fan. I just see him as a leader as well. And he's very good on the ball. And he's centre half. I think there's a lot of comparisons. It's hard for you to say that, but well, I think there is. I, I, I thank you for saying that. And uh, I can talk about Tom because I like Tom a lot. I, I, I like how he goes about his work. I not that it matters. I like his family because I, I bumped into his dad a few times in the hotel after the games, and you know he, he loves his football. He wants his boy to learn. He wants his his lad to get better. He wants his lad to get a first team place. I think he will. I think he'll be a great player for Reading. You know, got to give these players time, uh, and I like him. Very aggressive. Very good in the air. He's an athlete. He's got to be an athlete now. You know, let's be honest. He's got to be an athlete now. And like you say, he's good on the ball. I, I like him. I think he's got a big future. I hope 
I hope, because of the turnaround with managers we've had over the, the last few years, I hope Mark has a bit of time now to establish himself as, as, a, as a manager and establish his team and how he wants to go about it, as in playing. You know, he's had a fair amount of time at the moment, but I hope he has much more time. I hope the results uh, pick up as well. And I hope Tom is given, you know, a chance because I don't think he's ever let Reading down. No. But then again, I said that about Jake Cooper. And mm. I, very rarely did Jake Cooper ever let Reading down. He really didn't get the chance and he had to move on to progress his career, which he has done. Yeah, no respect to Jake Cooper. I personally have put Tom McIntyre slightly ahead of him. But I know what you're saying about Jake Cooper. He's definitely a talent. And there's one we shouldn't have let go. But that was the managerial decision, wasn't it? And these things happen, don't they? It's a kind Thank of... You. And as a player, you've got to play games. You've got to play first-team games. You know, people say, oh, well, you're picking up your wages. Trust me. You know, wages without playing. You need the carrot at the end of the week. And, you know, Jake was coming to a really vital part of his career. I think he wasn't a young lad anymore. You know, he needs to be playing regularly. And he, he hasn't looked back. He's, he's done great. And, you know, I just compare him, uh, not comparing him as a player to Tom, but I hope, you know, Tom doesn't have to go elsewhere to, to further his career. No, no, I agree. So kind of wrapping this up, where do you think, I'm feeling like most confident about Reading I've been for the last few years. Let's put the pandemic on the side because those finance things, we don't know what's going to happen there. We look to have a decent kind of calm setter with Mark Bowen in charge. We're sat mid-table. We're continuously picking up results before we broke off and everything. And there seemed to be a structure to the team and a team ethic. Do you think that's fair? Do you think we're in a semi-decent place, AD? Yeah, I think Reading are on the up. I do. I, I agree with you. You've seen a lot of Reading over the years, Paul, I have. And trust me, you know, we're in a better place than what we have been in, in recent years. A little bit scary with the figures yeah, off the pitch, definitely. but yeah. that's never been my concern. You know, as, as a Reading fan, Paul, you know, if, if Reading were losing 300 grand a week financially and we were top of the championship table, would it really bother you? Probably not, you know, because you just want to see Reading win football matches. Uh, so that's a little bit scary, but I, I think Mark's done a good job. I think he's come in to steady the ship and get results. He's done that. Uh, we've got some good players at the football club. I speak to other managers and I know it's easy for other managers to say they've got a good squad and they've been underachieving, but we have got a good squad. We've got some decent players and you know, I was looking more Miazga and Morrison, Martinez a little while ago and Raphael. I'm thinking, I tell you what, maybe I'm blinded and, you know, I'm a Reading fan, but I think West Brom could do with them. Leeds yeah, would quite like those. You know, the bigger clubs, mm. the teams that are at the right end of the championship would like these players. And you could go through a Jaria, Swift, you, get, you can go right through the team. So, answer to your question, I think the gaffer's done well. Uh, he's done what's been required. He's steadied the ship and got some results. Got us away from, you know, the relegation zone comfortably, I think, now. And uh, I hope, you know, if he's backed, he can, you know, can push on. And regardless of what happens this year, I'm not interested right now. I miss it, like you. And I want Reading back out there. And I want to be at the Madstad watching games. But let's get through this pandemic first because we look at the bigger picture. And you know what? Let's... You know, regardless of what happens for the rest of the season. For Reading, it's not a make or break. You know, for me, Reading ain't going to finish in the top six and ain't going to get relegated anyway. But as a Reading fan, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to a little bit excited about next season, possibly. 
Yep, no, I totally agree. And I think that's a good point to uh, finish on. So thanks a lot, AD, for joining us. I've really enjoyed it. And um, let's hope we see some wins and you're talking about it on the radio very soon. Cheers. Cheers.